0: Go in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And our watershed verse this morning is going to be verse 13. Let me read that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. The Bible says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And today is the first day that we're going to be walking through six weeks of talking about doubt. And we're not going to ask for a show of hands, but probably most of us in here, at one time or another, have come to that place. And we have something up here for those of you who like visuals. And we had our great Rocky Mount Baptist Church engineering crew work this out. So uh, if you've ever been on a seesaw, you remember that how it was as a kid, as a seesaw? And if you were lighter or heavier, sometimes you would have to counterbalance that so that you wouldn't die or be jetted into the next county. You know, the seesaw. And a seesaw or, or a system of weights is something that if you have more weight on one side, this is deep for our physics people, the heavier side will go down. Amen? Alright? Okay. So, And then if you've got more weight on one side, it will go down. And often in Christian life in church in America, even in evangelical and Baptist churches, there are people who come all the time, but they have unanswered questions. We're not talking about um, what we're going to speak about in three weeks, which is unbelief. And let me just give you a, a little little precursor. Some people have. The belief, they say, if I ever have a doubt, does that mean that I'm in the same class that Jesus talks about as those who do not believe? Doubt is something different, and we'll unpack more of what that means. But often, the scales will become weighted more to one side of doubt, and instead of trying to pursue those questions and find answers, we just push them to the back of our minds, don't we? And we think, well, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to have faith. I'm not supposed to question God, but we do have questions, right? It's not like we want to have questions. I mean, how many of us walk around saying, you know what? I want to have more questions than I know what to do with. Right? I mean, does anybody come into this world saying, I want to walk around, I want to sit there at the stoplight and be thinking so far about questions that people are honking at me. Right? Like, nobody does that. So questions are going to come because we're rational beings. And what can happen very easily is that Christians who have doubts, unanswered questions about an assortment of issues can come to the place to where they are serving God outwardly But inwardly, they're not actually trusting the Lord. And what we're going to unpack here today is three myths about doubt. Let me give them to you right up front. The first myth that a lot of people believe about doubt is that Christians, let's just say normal Christians, never have doubts. you ever thought about that before? You know, you look at some of these people and they may teach a Sunday school class or they may sing in the choir and you say, man, those people, I, they look like they have it figured out. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, for example, you go to the doctor's office and your doctor comes out and he says something like, you know, the doctor comes in, he's got, you know, uh, overalls, blue jeans, hadn't shaved for about five days, and he's like, y'all got that weed eater started yet? And you're like, and this is my heart doctor, let me find another doctor. But I mean, if this if this guy comes in and he's speaking precision English, he looks immaculate, you look on the wall and he's got like MD from John Hopkins University and he gives you the list of all of his, amen, successful heart surgeries, that's a good thing, right? Like you want to look at that line, I don't, okay, success, I don't want the guy who failed, right? And by the way, what do you call a uh, medical student who passes with C's? Doctors. That gets you confidence, doesn't it? Alright. So, it's one of those things that, depending upon the way we view people, we may think that they have more questions answered than they actually do. But when we come to questions, we need to understand, this is a great watershed verse for assortment of doubts, temptations, Let's look at it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. The Bible says, no temptations. So help me out, church. How many temptations is it talking about? Yeah, so there's no exemptions. All right, No temptation has overtaken you. That's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? Overtaken you. Because we don't look after temptation, right? I mean, some people who are lost, they live in it. But Christians don't walk around saying, let me look for ways to be tempted. But sometimes temptations of the flesh... And of the mind. They overtake us. But it says, that is not common to man. Or you can translate this, no temptation uh, has overtaken you except what is common to man. Which means that if you have doubts, if you have questions, if you struggle with things, you are this. You are normal. Amen? Okay, now we're going to take a step back and some people will take that and be like, awesome. That means I've got an excuse. That means I've got an excuse not to follow Jesus. That means I've got an excuse to wear my doubts on my sleeves and say, well, I don't give to missions because I'm just not sure of this. Or things that people say, well, okay, if, if I'm, if I'm a sinner and if I'm going to have temptations, then that means it's not anything wrong when I just break down and get drunk on a Friday night, right? Like it's not a big, God doesn't care, you know, that I drop the F bomb or if I, I, if I yell at my, is that too much on a Sunday morning? Y'all okay? That's the way the world is. It's real and it's raw. You go to work, all right? And I wasn't going to say you go to work too, because I'm not saying that we've got it here in the office. Place. We've got a great office place here, okay? But what happens often is that we have this sensation, we have this sense of looking at verses like this, and we want to avoid what a lot of people do. They'll take a verse that says, Don't fall on your sword when you stumble. And sometimes people who are not walking with Jesus will be like, so that means that God doesn't really care if I sleep around, right? I mean, one affair every couple of years is not really that bad, you know. I mean, like like students like cheating on a test. I mean, I had a lot going on, you know. I was busy, you know. There's like Xbox and Facebook and texting and things like that. I mean, my life is just busy. So God, it's not that big of a deal to God if I do these things. Well, if God is like us, that's true, right? God's just a big you and a big me. And God can give exemptions and all sorts of stuff. But if God is the God that the Bible says, then He is absolutely holy and sin is a big, humongous deal. So how are we supposed to understand this? Here's how we're supposed to understand it. The the fact that we are tempted means that we are going in the direction of Christ. Let me explain that. Some people say, Jeff, you could not believe the temptations that I struggle with. I'm trying to quit fill in the blank. I'm trying to quit this. I'm really trying to start reading my Bible. But you would not believe the temptations that I encounter. It is unbelievable. It's like every time I try to put the key into the Jesus car of my life, get in and say, Jesus, right? like the country song, Jesus, take the wheel. It seems like the tires go flat. It seems like the transmission goes out and I had it replaced last week. How do I understand my struggle with sin? Number one, and if you're taking notes, these are sub-points of the main driving thought. If you struggle with temptation, if you struggle with doubt... You should praise God, because lost people do not struggle with temptation. They live in it. Did you know that you have to be alive to struggle with something? You ever thought about that? That's kind of a good thought. Here's what it means. That if I am dead in my sins and trespasses, if I don't give a rip about God, if the only only thing I have to do with church is just maybe ways to go to find an excuse to continue to live the way that I normally live, then I'm not even struggling with it. So the fact that we're in the war, the fact that we're being shot at, is the fact, is a reality that Christ is doing a work in our life. Amen? Like the fact that it bothers us that we have doubts. The fact that we're like, man, I wish that it would say right here there'd be some way I could escape from every temptation. Well, in a sense, notice how the verse goes. It says that there is no temptation as overtaking you except what is common to man. This is good. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now that's a good word. It goes further. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the Bible is saying that we are going to experience temptations. Temptations of the mind to doubt the Word of God. Temptations of the flesh to do things that we know in our conscience are totally wrong. But the Bible says that God will provide a way of escape. You say, well, how do I tell the difference? The heart is what is either going to find the way of escape or the way of excuse. Have been in that time in your life before to where you've just looked for the way of excuse? Not for a show of hands, but have you ever been there, right? Like you're, you're living for yourself so much that it's like, man, Jeff, I don't even want to pray anymore because I don't think that God's going to listen to me. Or maybe you've been to that time in your life which we're going to talk about next week to where it seems like people say your prayers bounce off the ceiling. We're going to look at the subject next week when God is silent. You ever endured something like that? You say, man, Lord, it seems like everybody else is doing well and they're not serving you. I'm trying to serve you and everything is messing up in my life. God, where are you? If you want to get a precursor, go check out Psalm chapter 73. It's amazing. We're going to walk through that whole text. But today, for our time together, let's first define what doubt actually is. In the language of the New Testament, to doubt means to waver or to be uncertain about a particular course of action. To hesitate. To hesitate. So doubt sometimes can be like this. God, I doubt, I don't want to say that, but I'm unsure whether you're actually going to lead me to where I need to be or if you care about me. And often situations in our life, if you think back to those times in our lives that we've been through and it's been a brutal time. Like those of you who are married, I mean, it seems like the marriage is on the rocks, finances are on the rocks, and all of those times can cause us to doubt The Lord. To doubt means to waver. Several months ago, I had my first caving experience. How many of you have you ever been caving? Not like walking to a cave, but like been caving. Okay. All right. A few. This was my first caving experience. And I went with Barry and Helene. and, And we were way, way, way down in this cave. And we got to the point and uh, my my brother, he's very claustrophobic, you know. But I was, you know, there trying to stay focused to where you're kind of doing the soldier crawl on your elbows. You know what I'm talking about? Like down, not 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 to where you're doing, you know, the midget man walk. Like you're down like that, but where you're actually crawling like a soldier. And there was a guy in front of me who was a big dude. All right, he was with the team, and uh, came to this little crevice, and I'm like, I don't care how skinny a person is, how does somebody fit in there? Barry, another person, whoosh, whoosh, right through. Then the big dude is in front of me. Now, imagine, you are Jeff. You are on your stomach, soldier crawl, and you see a little bitty hole up ahead, and a big old man, a lot bigger than you, and he's going to try to fit through the hole. And I say, well, I can look back. Helene's behind me. She's got like world records in this stuff. And I look back, and le- eyes were huge. That's not usually a good sign, right? So I was trying to tell him, man, you know, it's no problem. Like, you're the man. You don't have to force your way through. And But anyway, he got through. But here's the thing. I have absolute confidence that Barry and Helene can get us in and get us out. Why? They've been there a number of times. But when I saw what did not look possible and could possibly have me separated between half of the party and just me and Helene back and a guy stuck in like, way underneath the ground and to be honest I wasn't so worried about dying or asphyxiating but we had what was it the cantata You guys know about the cantata. That was Saturday. The cantata was next day. And I said, man, I'm the narrator. If I get stuck down here and I die, Fred Tudor's going to come find me, resurrect me, and kill me again. I've got to get back for that cantata. I mean, y'all know what I'm talking about? The sea to the otta. I mean, you got to get back. So, But when I was down there, I kind of got a little nervous when Tim was getting partially stuck but I realize that I'm with someone who is a confident guide. And that's kind of the way that doubt may play. Sometimes we may have the doubt meter tipped to one side, but I want us to understand the first plank is that we need to understand that it's a total myth, because the Bible says that temptation is going to come. It's a myth that normal Christians do not have doubts. Now, we're going to try to walk through this very quickly, verses 1 through 12. Here is the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The idea is in verse 1, Paul is talking about when the Israelites escaped from Egypt. Remember that? Ten Commandments, Charlton, Heston, Technicolor, okay? It says in verse 2, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then in verse number 5, It says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse number 5. Now these things took place as what? As an example, right? Examples to us that we might not desire evil as they did. What kind of evil did they desire? Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them, as, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What had happened? Remember, Moses was on the mountain. The people had basically a very immoral type of party, okay? It was Mardi Gras at the base of the mountain. And the Bible says in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as... Some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must, verse 9, not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, in uh, verse number 9 and 10, we see here that they succumbed, they gave in, they caved to the temptations of the flesh, and then check this out, the temptations of the mind. See, what do you mean? You have the temptations of the mind. They began to grumble even though God had given them high quality H2O from a rock. God had given them all the protein they needed by way of quail. God had given them all of the carbs. And I don't think they made you fat at all. Amen. I think they were the good time kind that gave you energy. But you didn't have to worry about putting on weight. God gave them everything they needed. God brought them out of Egypt. Killed their enemies protected them miraculously, and then they grumbled because they got hungry for a split second. That's not really doubt. That's something that we're going to unpack in about three weeks called unbelief. And notice what it says in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 12. Therefore, alright, so we know what happened. Therefore let anyone who thinks he, that he stands take heed lest he fall. That means that here this morning, if you've had victory and the Lord has done a great work in your life and you're like, you know what? I think I could take Satan out with just the old one, two, three, right? I'm not worried about Satan, man. I have been cruising. I've been trucking. God provided me a job. I'm reading my Bible. I just want to kind of walk over to Satan and be like, what's up? (laughs) The Bible says, and once again, we're not saying that we lack confidence in God, but we're saying the Bible is... Clearly teaching, verse 12, look at it with me, read it again. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. Now, take heed means watch out lest he fall. Means means the times of temptation can come most often when we think that we've got all the answers figured out. Because often when we think that we have all the answers figured out, we have come to the point of something called pride. And you know the thing about pride is it's very deceptive, isn't it? Like you talk to someone about pride. Like let's say you have a relationship with someone, you're very close, you can talk to them, they can talk to you, and you've noticed that they've grown arrogant. You say, you know, you take them to the side. You don't do it like prayer requests, right? Like, have you ever seen that? Like, gossip is prayer request? Any prayer request? Well, someone so, she's got a pride problem. Right? I'm like, that's, that's gossip. That's not a prayer request. So, but, but like, you go to that, that friend, that guy or that girl, and, and you say, you know, I just want to let you know, I, I've seen some stuff. I may be wrong, but it looks like you may have some pride that's creeping into your life. And I say, I don't have a problem with pride. Hello. Take heed lest you fall. And notice what the text also says in verse 13 as we looked at. All of the temptations are going to be somewhat normal. And here is the difference um, between... Actually, let me jump ahead and give you... um, the statement there by... Uh, we actually have this included in our outline. Just I thought it was so good. Sometimes we do that. Uh, un, under the second division there, look where it says doubt is the same as unbelief. That's a myth. Look at the statement from Elmer Towns. You see, man, how do I know whether I'm one of those crew that Jesus condemns or whether I just have questions? Elmer Towns says this, Doubt is not unbelief. Unbelief is rebellion against evidence that we cannot or will not accept. Doubt is not unbelief. Unbelief is rebellion against evidence that we cannot or will not accept. And I love this. Doubt is stumbling over a stone that we do not understand. Unbelief is kicking at a stone that we understand all too well. Well say, what about people in the Bible, Jeff? Did they doubt? Let me give you five quick examples. Number one, Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Remember what God promised him? By the way, did you know the first Jew was an Iraqi? Ur of the Chaldees, that's modern day Iraq. God looked at this guy whose whole family worshipped the moon. Like, we talked the other week about worshipping a calf. Like, that's pretty bad, right? Like, out of all the animals you could worship, you're like, baby calf, that's what I want to worship. They worship the moon. You can laugh. They wor- y'all, y'all get that? They worship the moon. And God says, I'm going to take a moon worshiper. I'm going to call him. I'm going to convert him. I'm going to save him. And then He said, I'm going to give you a nation through you. So God is basically saying, Abraham, I'm going to provide you a son, even though you're old and your wife is old. But then remember what Abraham did when he came to the new area? He basically told a white lie... Maybe it was like a tan lie, right? Like, white lies are never white. People are like, well, you know, you ask him a question. Have you ever told a lie? Well, you know, I've told told a white lie. And you ask what it was. You're like, dude, that's like a a brown lie. That's not a white lie. That's like, not at all. So he came there and he told him, this is my sister. He didn't let him know it was his wife. Do you think that Abraham could have experienced some doubts? Because if he truly believed that God was going to make a great nation through him... He could have walked up to any one of those guys and said, my name is Abram, or God changed it to Abraham, and he's going to protect me. Go ahead and try it. Right? Like he could have worn that on his sleeve, but he did that in Genesis chapter 20, and also in Genesis chapter 12. Also Job. These are the verses in Job that you do not hear mentioned from the pulpit. You know we always talk about Job, right? God gives. God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But if you read the book of Job he begins to have a crisis of faith that's in your bulletin. He says in uh, chapter 14, verse 19, Job says this, The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy, speaking to God, so you destroy the hope of man. Have looked at a, a stone that's been worn away? Job is saying, God, that's what you've done to me. He also says in chapter 19, verse 7, Behold, I cry out, Violence! Remember his family got killed? But I am not answered. God, I call for help, but there is no justice. David, Psalm chapter 13. He said, How long, O Lord, will you forgive, forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. He's saying, God, you're holy, but I still have some issues. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 7 through 9. Jeremiah also says, speaking of God, He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. Have you ever felt like that? He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. John the Baptist, Luke chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, Jesus' miracles. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You remember what John had said the first time he saw Jesus when Jesus entered his ministry? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But where was John in Luke chapter 7? He was in prison, he was awaiting execution. And do you think that it could be very possible? This is very plain from the text. That the fact that he was in prison could cause him to say, You know what? Let me me have a double check. Do you guys mind going and asking Jesus one more time, Are you the one? And remember what Jesus didn't do to those guys who came? Jesus didn't say, He didn't just blow them away and say, Who is John in prison, about to die, alone, under the thumb of a tyrant? Who is he to question anything? You know what Jesus did? He sent it back and he said, tell John what you've seen. Tell him you've seen the dead raised. Tell him you've seen the blind given sight. Tell him you've seen all of these signs. So this is so encouraging that if you're here today and you have genuine questions, like you really want to find truth, the Lord will not push you away. He is the one who will come and answer those questions. Let me give you two statements. Number one, Leon McKenzie says, we come into this world with question marks in our heads. The question marks in our heads are never fully erased. Right now, we've got some folks scared. You say, well, can I know that Jesus is the Son of God? Absolutely. In fact, in four weeks, we're going to look at a, 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 an intellectual message, uh, evidence from the Bible about how we can actually know with absolute certainty, unless we just rewrite history and throw everything away, that Jesus actually came. This is so amazing. We're going to look, we're going to look at facts that secular historians believe. In fact, did you know that you can even prove the resurrection as a historical event without even referring to the Bible? Four weeks, we're going to walk through that. I'm talking about you can know that Jesus is the Son of God. You can know that He's the Savior. You can know that heaven is real. I'm going to unpack that more next week. And my own doubt... My own time of doubting about whether there was anything after this life. C.S. Lewis also says, Now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable." And that's a lie that some of the atheists would try to have you believe that they never doubt. Did you guys hear what happened several weeks ago? Richard Dawkins finally admitted that he can't be 100% sure that God doesn't exist. Isn't it good to have that honesty? Amen. Have the world's most famous atheist, you know, like, you know, I'm not everywhere at one time. In fact, he doesn't even have a degree in philosophy, but he wants to philosophize everybody who does have a degree, and even people who don't, and he's not even a good philosopher. He just uses um, all sorts of fallacious arguments. Let me say this also. Often when you deal with doubt, there are some people, and you just came into this world, and you were more tightly wound than other people. Have you noticed that within families? You can have someone and they come into the world and they are like we, we took uh, when I was a pastor in Georgia, we took our youth on a ski trip. They had one seventh grader. I mean, he was so nervous. You know, what time are we going to do this? What's the schedule? I mean, we had to like provide this child an outline like minute by minute or otherwise. He didn't know what was going on. He started stressing. And then you've got a free spirit person. You're like schedule schedule I just want to have fun, and I just want to get in there and just. Who cares about you, detailed person? Need to get a life, right? And you go to to, to the, the. And if you ever have a husband and a wife who are both free spirits, is a pastor. You go visit their house. It's like Nerf gun wars going everywhere. You know, like tack, it's it's hilarious. If you go, if you go, and you know people like this too. If you've known people and they're just very very serious very detailed, very line by line. You go over to their house and there's just kind of this sense when you walk in that you need to be very careful what you say. You've been there, right? Like you walk in not wanting to disturb the dust that is lit upon the table since it was dusted 15 minutes before you got there. Being really careful what you say with your words. The the, the point is that there's some of you and you say, man, Jeff, I just don't have an issue with doubting. I heard the gospel when I was a kid. I heard that Jesus died for me. He loved me. I got saved. I haven't had one doubt. And there's some and you're like, man, if I could shut off my mind at night. If I could just shut it off, if there was a switch, I would be able to get rest." But Jeff, it's like it's like my mind goes all the time. I'm thinking, what if this? What if that? And in fact, um, when we cover emotional doubt the week after next, I hope that you're here. We're going to cover the what if mentality. If you're a what if kind of person, we're gonna, it's amazingly good for the soul what we're going to look at. Because if you're a what if type of person, you say, well, yeah, but, but the Bible says that, you know, God says right there that he'll, well, he'll give me a way to escape and I will be able to endure it. But what if I... See? And if it's the what if, it's just going to continue to continue to fester and fester, never any uh, ultimate answer. So number one, we've got to understand it's a myth that Christians never have doubt. Number two, we've got to understand it's a myth that unbelief is the same as doubt. It's not. Unbelief is a rejection. Like Elmer Towns says, uh, doubt is, what's he say? Uh, Is stumbling over a stone that we do not understand. Unbelief is kicking at a stone that we understand all too well, finally, number three, and this is a very freeing aspect of our study, and we're going to unpack this in the weeks to come, that doubt, let me put my Bible down to use dual hand motions to get the point across, there is a myth that doubt is an intellectual or primarily or always an intellectual issue. It's like this. Well, those people who doubt, those are the really smart ones, Okay? That means that that doubt, you always deal with doubt with philosophical and theological and historical facts. But we're going to look at, not this coming week, the week after, when we deal with when I don't feel it's true, that an overwhelming majority of doubts are emotional. They come from our past. They come oftentimes from what we have been told. But the Bible says, time and time again, the Lord reaches at His hand, just like Peter. Remember Peter, he was there. He was sinking on the waves when he looked away from Jesus. We're going to look at ways for us to be able to have absolute faith in the Lord. I don't know if you've ever played pickup basketball or basketball for a team. That's was kind of uh, my sport growing up. And I remember that when I first started, I wanted to play football. Okay? And if it's, if you can believe this, I was a skinny kid. I know it may be hard for you to believe, but I was a very skinny child. And my parents are like, we don't want all your bones broken. So no, son, you cannot play football. And so they said, you can play basketball. So I thought, like, ah, basketball is for sissies, you know, but, it, so they, they put me in the basketball. Uh, team, and I played, and it was like the first game. I remember Justin, I mean, he was a very good ball player, came down and he did a good bounce pass to me. And when I got the ball, I realized I have not played as a seven year old kid, I have played basketball almost nada. And just the f- I don't know, if, I don't know if anybody here can identify with that, but when you get the ball and you realize this is not my thing, it was all of a sudden this fear. This insecurity, and you see all the parents. And by the way, if you've ever played sports, the good totes will tell you the fans are not here, right? Because I mean, if you listen to the fans, you know they're telling you your dog hates you, you know, and your gerbil's going to maul you at night and get out of his cage. There's all sorts of crazy stuff and make you miss your free throws. And when I got the ball, fear overcame me. And guess what I did? As fast and I caught it. I was proud of that. Amen. That's good save. You can catch it. You never want to be that kid where it hits you in the face, you know, and you're there bleeding all over the place. If that's you, the Lord still loves you, um, but nobody's going to give you the ball. And so I caught the ball and then as fast as I got it, threw it back to Justin. You know, over the years, it changed because with any sport, the more time you practice, the more your confidence grows. So what I hope will happen in these next five remaining weeks is that when the ball is passed to us by other people or by our own mind that sometimes will not shut off, we will not automatically kick it back and try to erase it But those of you, and this is just a precursor, who have real doubts, talk to me, begin to research that joker into the ground. Amen? We are the most industrious nation that's ever been, ever. There's lots of answers from the Bible, apologetics websites. So when the ball is passed to you, my prayer is that the Lord will instill us the confidence that we can realize what the ball is and know what to do with it for the glory of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we come to this time of commitment If you're here today and you say, Jeff, I I have some doubts, but I do know that I'm a sinner. I do know that the Lord desires to save me, even though I don't deserve it. I know that I need God in my life. I need to transfer it to Him. Just right now, just give it to Him. Just repent. Turn away from your sin. Just ask Him to be your Savior.